Let's now go to God's holy and infallible word, and we'll begin with John 3.16. Let's listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then from John 15, this is Jesus speaking, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And from Romans 9, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And Romans 10, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And then a couple spots in Ephesians, finally. Uh, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So 2018, 2019, this year into the next, is the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort sometimes called the Synod of Dortrecht, and uh, a good number of people consider this synod to be the most important gathering of the church since the time of the early church. Dutch and international delegates met in the city of Dortrecht, the Netherlands, from um, November 2018 through May 2019. And, And a number of decisions about A whole variety of topics were made over those months, Uh, but most people more often think of the canons of Dort when we think of the Synod of Dort. And the canons are also known as uh, the Articles Against the Remonstrance, which was the group that the Synod was responding to. As pastors, elders, deacons, and even All of us as professing members, we indicate our agreement with the three forms of unity. Uh, Two of them we tend to know decently well because we often use portions of them in worship. 
the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Belgic Confession. Uh, but I thought on the occasion of this anniversary year of the Synod of Dort, it would be good to be reminded of what we believe as expressed in the canons of Dort. Um, the canons are found on page 91 in the back of the blue Psalter hymnals in the pews. If, if you want, uh, I'm not going to be reading particularly from there, but the sermon is certainly based on the topics that are there. Page 91 and following, if you want to check that out during the sermon or later. Um, the canons contain five sections, five topics, which over the years have been affectionately remembered by many people with the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Uh, they're often called the five points of Calvinism, though that's not entirely accurate. It would be more accurate to say they are five points on the Reformed view of salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, those two other main confessions that we have, cover all kinds of topics in the Bible. Um, but the Canons of Dort is pretty narrowly focused on what we believe about salvation. This reminder of uh, what the canons teach uh, during this anniversary year, I think, will be helpful to us, but also really relevant because in the past 10 to 15 years, and, and maybe you're aware of this, while there remain folks out there who seem vehemently opposed uh, to the Calvinist view of salvation, in the last number of years, there are a lot of Christians and a lot of various churches and denominations who are appreciating and turning to the Reformed view of salvation. Um, and in a sense, turning back to that view because a lot of denominations and churches, it's basically getting back to their roots. The original confessions of folks like Anglicans, Congregationalists, Baptists, Presbyterians, their original roots are theologically reformed and were almost in complete agreement originally except for the matter of baptism. And on the subject tonight of election, uh, you could add that the Lutheran confessions agree with that and us too. And, and those, those roots that some of these denominations and churches are, are going back to, they go back to, all the way back to the early church fathers, the early church, and more than that, I believe they go back to Scripture itself. John Calvin and other leaders in the church and in the universities during the time of the Reformation, after some centuries of deformation in the church, in the, in the academy where people were taught, wanted to get the church back to the Bible. And we believe that to be reformed is simply to be biblical. We so much appreciate so many aspects of so many different Christian traditions, and we are one with all who call on the name of Jesus, but as a church and as pastors, we believe that a Reformed approach to Scripture is the way to go. I've yet to have seen or read another 
system or summary of theology in the Bible that does a better job of conveying what God's Word teaches. And that's what it's about. That's what's first. That's our authority. The Bible is first. Not being reformed, not being so-called Calvinistic. We don't talk all the time about being Calvinistic here. I, I don't think you've ever heard me or Pastor Matthew pound the pulpit, we are reformed! We don't approach things that way, and, and we're on the, the same page about that as pastors. And, and, and the reason we don't talk about that all the time and is because that's not the main point. It's not that it's unimportant, but that's not the main point. That's not what we need to be emphasizing as a church. The real point, the main point, is to bring people to the Bible. The main point is to bring people to Jesus. But the reality is every church, every pastor, every Christian approaches Scripture from a certain point of view, not in a vacuum. And this is the type of little series uh, to remind ourselves that at Faith Church, we are unashamedly reformed. This is how we approach God's Word. It impacts our preaching, all of our preaching, all of our teaching, our worship, and even our church order, how our church runs. So, a bit more... um, on the background here, the canons of Dort respond to a particular attack against the church by the followers of a, of a, a pastor, professor named Jacob Arminius, um, and who are called, those followers of Arminius are called Arminians, not Armenians. Not Armenians. Armenians are an ethnic group Uh, who are, for the most part, in the country of Armenia, but a little bit surrounding too. So Armenians, or as I said before, sometimes they're called remonstrants. And also, like I said before, the acronym TULIP has been helpful, but it's not the actual order of those five topics in the Canons of Dort. It doesn't start with the T. It starts with the U. So ALTIP is really the correct order. I didn't think I'd get a chuckle out of that, (laughs) but it is kind of funny. Um, So we're actually going to follow the order all tip uh, for these these messages, And, and that means we start with unconditional election. So the first head of doctrine in the canons is called, if, if you looked at it before, if you're looking at it now, divine election and reprobation. So pretty heavy stuff. And uh, these are terms that, that folks can find pretty harsh. Uh, but as, as we get into this a little bit, we need to keep in mind that all we're talking about here, and though, even those words divine election and reprobation, all we're talking about here are words from the Bible. And uh, just to add a couple verses to what we already read before the message, Jeremiah 6.30 says about people, reprobate silver shall men call them because the Lord has rejected them. 
In 1 Peter 1, 2, for many are called, few are, cho- are chosen. A related word to election and reprobation is predestination. We read that in Ephesians 1. Predestination is the bigger, broader word term to refer to all of God's choosing. Election refers specifically to his choosing for salvation. Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of the greatest and and most appreciated preachers of all time, says this um, about election. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. If it's a matter of believing in election, you have to as a Christian. It's that simple. You have to believe it. It's in the Bible. The word is there. It's very obvious. But then what's the issue? Well, differences come in in what people mean by election. That's why there's the you, unconditional election. And what that does is it gets to the grounds on which people are elected. God elects. That's in the Bible. You've got to believe it because the Bible says God elects. But how? On what basis? And that's where some of the differences among Christians come in. Um, as far as I can put together, there are three main views. The first is merited election. Um, and it's called Pelagianism. Uh, During the time of the early church already, this was identified as a false teaching. And it teaches that election is earned. A British monk named Pelagius, um, he lived from like 350 to about 425, popularized the view that God elects people because they are good. God elects people on the basis of of their personal righteousness. And and this goes very directly against any number of Scripture texts, but I think of Titus 3, where we read, God saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. Though it's certainly possible to live our lives like a Pelagian, practically speaking, thinking and living as if we need to do all this stuff to earn our salvation, to earn our way to God. It's a whole other matter that we're not going to talk about tonight. You can live like a Pelagian, practically speaking. However, not too many thoughtful people actually hold to Pelagianism because it's very easily disputed from God's Word, and it was identified as a heresy very early on in church history. Conditional election is what Arminianism teaches. That's another type of election, and that's what led to the Synod of Dort. And and the Arminians actually expressed themselves in five points. And the five points in the Canons of Dort are a direct response to each one of the Arminian points. 
Um, it teaches that God elects, you guys sticking with me here? It teaches that God elects those he foresees will believe in Christ for salvation. And another way to describe it is that uh, they believe people can meet God's condition of believing in Jesus. That's, we're called to believe in Jesus, right? To believe in Jesus and, you're, and we're saved. People can meet that condition and believe in Jesus by exercising their free wills. God, way back when, foresees who is going to use their free will to believe in Jesus, and then on the basis of seeing way ahead what that person's going to do, elects them in eternity. On the basis of their free will choice. That's, in a nutshell, the Arminian view of election. And then finally, unconditional election. The response to Arminius at Dort uh, goes back to the early church, Father Augustine, many theologians in the Middle Ages, and almost all the Reformation theologians. And unconditional election means that God elects people on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of their choice. And so if you believe the Bible, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you believe in election. The difference between Christians isn't between election or no election, but what kind of election does the Bible actually teach us? The Arminian view is sometimes called the, the free will view. And we're going to talk about that for just a little bit. Again, God looks ahead to those who will accept his offer of salvation with their free will and then chooses those people in, back in eternity. Uh, the Reformed view is that our will is not free, but in such bondage to sin that it will not and it does not choose what is right unless God intervenes. And that view is very famously um, explained in Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. Another way to get at the difference is to ask between, that is, the Arminian view and um, the Reform view, does God elect people because they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or does God elect people in order that they will believe in Jesus Christ? And I would say that God elects people in order that they believe in Christ. Not because they will. And why? Well, because everything that we read about the nature and extent of sin and, and the extent of how broken and, and messed up our will is, Everything that Scripture says about all this, these things indicate that people are unable to believe without God doing something first. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. God elects the basis is his grace, not our free will. Salvation is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. 
The heading in the canons I said earlier includes the word reprobation. And this means that God passes others by and leaves them in their sin. And you can read the details on that in, in the words in the canons. Uh, but basically, it means that not everyone receives the gift of grace. And immediately people uh, in our days ask, is this fair? Uh, and people raise that question. But there's a point at which we have to accept what the Bible says. Not just not just on this doctrine, but on all sorts of doctrines. We just have to accept what's been revealed in Scripture, what the Bible quite clearly teaches, and then we let God be God. And, and, and we don't try to be God. We try to be His children and His followers. Um, a Calvinist once had a conversation with someone who was a very indoctrinated Arminian. He was against Calvinism. He emphasized his choice again and again. And, and finally, the reformed person asked this, and maybe, maybe you've heard this before. Now, my Arminian friend, when you go on your knees to pray at night, who do you pray to? Who do you give thanks to? Yourself or God? Do you pray self? Thank you for being so enlightened enough to find and choose salvation. Or do you pray, God, Thank you for granting salvation even to me. And the Arminian brother said, well, of course, I, I pray to God and I thank him for my salvation. The other person said, well, then uh, you're a reformed person in my book. Some of the reaction against Calvinism uh, has been by, by Arminians, followers of, of Arminius. By the way, there is a church of the Remonstrants. If you look that up online, uh, I don't know how many, maybe 50,000, 60,000 pe people around the world, most of them in the Netherlands still. I think they call themselves the Church of the Remonstrants. So they're very deliberately... And there's all sorts of other people who believe in the Arminian view of salvation. But some of the reaction that uh, we hear sometimes against Calvinism by Arminians has been reacting to what is often called hyper-Calvinism. And if people are reacting to hyper-Calvinism, um, they're not really uh, addressing Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism and, and, and the people that are anti-Calvinist um, they're confusing Calvinism with fatalism. And hyper-Calvinism really isn't a Reformed teaching at all. And there, there are two areas I just want to touch on where these hyper-Calvinists have gone wrong, and it should cause concern uh, for anybody that believes the Bible. <clears throat> Some of these types act like or say that because of this teaching, because of God's choice, Making a personal decision for Jesus is not so important. And they'll almost totally reject the importance of a personal turning to the Lord, even though the Bible very call, clearly calls us to believe. You know, there, there's some mystery, of course, in harmonizing that revealed will of God to believe and his secret will in election. Uh, but the solution is not to say, 
we do not need to turn to Jesus. It's ridiculous. It's not biblical. It's not reformed. Arminians and Calvinists alike reject this idea. Related to this, some hyper-Calvinist churches do not do evangelism because, well, the people will find the doors of the church if they're chosen. But no, we take very seriously Jesus' call to evangelize. We follow the Great Commission. Calvinists have been some of the giants of the missionary movement over the centuries. John Calvin, John Eliot, David Brainerd, Theodore Frelinghuysen, a, uh, a guy from the Dutch Reformed tradition, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, William Tennant, William Carey, John Stott, Francis Schaeffer, finally Dr. James Kennedy, who developed Evangelism Explosion. You might have heard of that. It's the most widely used evangelistic training curriculum in history. Again, there's mystery between God's election and his call for us to evangelize. But just because there's mystery somewhere doesn't mean we can ignore the clear teaching of Scripture. He chose us before the foundations of the world, yes, and God so loved the world that he gave his Son, and go and make disciples of all nations, and believe and be saved. Reformed people, like all biblical Christians, believe in the importance of missions, evangelism, and of people turning to Jesus. Don't let anyone who's anti-Calvinistic fool you. We believe in the importance of responding to the call of the gospel personally. Absolutely. We preach and teach that all the time here at Faith. I, I heard it this morning again uh, in, in the message. On the notion of that personal decision, however, I believe that there's a difference in emphasis. And that's where uh, we're going to end things today. Uh, there was once uh, at a Christian gathering, it was a conference, someone who um, was assigned one of the devotional times. And in that devotional time, he told the story of his personal conversion, his coming to Christ. He wasn't a Christian for the first many years of his life, but uh, he, as he described it, one night he wrestled all night with the Lord. And, and he, he, he was thinking in his mind, maybe even saying it out loud, I'm not going to stop wrestling with you, Lord, until I know. And the result of that all-night wrestling was that in the morning, he made, praise God, a decision for Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting about this. He kept going on with his devotional, and he, he said years later that whenever he struggled or doubted or or whatever in his Christian life, he said, I go back to that night. I go back to that decision that I made. And you see, there's the difference. A Reformed person, someone with a Reformed view of salvation, wouldn't, I don't think, first of all, think of their decision. 
in an instance of doubt. A reformed person would look to God's decision for comfort and assurance. That's where we find comfort, in His unconditional election. It's not that our decision or response or will is not a piece of the picture. It is. It's important, but that's not what it's all about for a Calvinist. That's not the grounds of salvation or election. It's about God's decision, His grace. And again, of course, any Christian would say it's about God's grace. But in salvation for someone who holds to this conditional election of Arminianism, there's more of an emphasis on man's will, man's decision, man and women's choosing And for a Reformed Christian, the emphasis is on God's will, God's decision, God's choosing. So that's it's a difference of emphasis for sure. So it's important to realize that our salvation doesn't depend on um, all the details of what we believe on this issue. And I I could have gone into much more detail. If even this level of detail was too much for you, that's okay. Our salvation doesn't depend on that. Our salvation depends on God, not what we believe about this or that, though it's important to have right belief. Um, Our salvation depends on God, and that's really what, what unconditional election is all about. Depends on God. His prior decision. And that leads to great and wonderful assurance and comfort in life. And out of that, out of that basis, we can confidently and passionately serve the Lord in all areas of our life. We're going to catch the L in all tip next week. And then in November, um, we'll pick up a couple more of these points. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for men and women who have gone uh, before us and, and searched out your word. So even while we diligently search out your word, uh, we, we don't start from scratch. Uh, we think of how your church searched the scriptures and articulated the doctrine of the Trinity Uh, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, and here in particular, uh, what we as a church and and many other Christians uh, everywhere believe about your salvation and how it works. Oh God, you are a great God. We give you the glory. Thank you for your sovereignty, your loving um, initiative and power over our lives. And in particular, in, in, in working in our hearts so that we might respond to your grace, so that we might say yes to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Help us to do that more and more every day, all the while giving you the glory, giving you the thanks. And on this basis, Lord, may we enthusiastically serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.